as we continue through the book of Matthew. Last week in chapter 20, uh, Jesus told the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And if you remember, the owner of the vineyard goes out in the morning and uh, hires a group, says, I'll pay you a denarius for the day. They agree. And that was a good day's wages. So, so it was a fine, common deal, and they go to work. And then he goes back uh, throughout the day and hires more people. But he doesn't tell them how much he's, he's going to pay them, just says it'll be right. And they work. And even at the very last hour, the 11th hour, which is right an hour before sundown, he goes and he hires more and brings them out. And then when he pays them, he pays the last people first, and he gives them a denarius. And the, the first people are like, oh, we're definitely going to get more because we've been here all day. And they get a denarius. And they're upset because they've borne the labor, worked through the heat of the day, and they're upset with the, the landowner saying, you've made us equal with these that have only worked an hour. And, and the response of the owner of the vineyard is really what Jesus is trying to bring across, that, that when God blesses someone, when God pours out his grace upon another's life, we cannot be those who are jealous because he is good, right? And in a very general sense, the people that are saved at a young age and they work their whole life doing things for the Lord and, and commit themselves and, and make sacrifices for the Lord, well, out of it, they get forgiveness for themselves, they get grace from God, they get salvation, eternity in heaven. But so does the one who saved moments before their death, no matter what type of life they've led. And even as Sharon talked about terrorists getting saved, what a huge miracle that is. And you know what? They get the same reward as us. And we should be rejoicing that that's true, right? That the grace of God is unfair, and we're grateful that it is, because none of us deserve it at all. Uh, so it makes it grace. Now, in chapter 20, uh, they were heading towards Jerusalem. But in chapter 21, they arrive. Uh, and we are going to see through the rest of Matthew this growing intensity that the cross is not far away now. And, and these are the, the last days as Jesus is really kind of preparing his disciples for what's ahead and they still don't get it. But we see this triumphant entry is what it's referred to. And it's interesting because it is a section of Scripture that I think still a lot of times we miss the whole point. Just like the people who were there, just like the disciples, I'm guessing, uh, the people will talk about the triumphant entry with this celebration and this joy. And, oh, it's so great. Everybody's recognizing who Jesus is and everybody's shouting Hosanna. And we'll see that that's really not what was going on. I mean, yes, that was happening, but that's not what this entry into Jerusalem was about from Jesus' perspective at all. So we're only going to go halfway through the chapter uh, today, but uh, let's pray, and we'll get into it. God, we thank you. Thank you for your word, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take it and apply it to our lives today. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to receive, and we just uh, want you to have your way in this church and in each one of us individually. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came, they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. 
And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately they will send them. And all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did just as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread out their clothes on the ground. Others cut down palm branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, a few miles outside of Jerusalem, Jesus sends the boys on this errand. And really throughout, there's several things in this chapter that if you don't know what's going on, it just seems so random. And, and this is one of those, I've even heard people say, well, it sounds like Jesus was tired. He said, hey, go get me the, a donkey and bring it here. These guys walked everywhere. He didn't have far to go to be in Jerusalem. It wasn't because he was tired. And, uh, and Matthew makes it clear that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. And again, we need to understand that this day that he is going to enter into, into Jerusalem is a massively important day. Not just the timing, but the way that he will enter. Matthew paraphrases the prophecy that's being fulfilled from Zechariah 9, but what Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, again, some people would look at this and go, okay, so Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why is that a big deal? Anyone could do that. Um, that's why the timing is so important. And again, the difference, the reason it being a donkey is also important. In, he, in Israel, when a king would proclaim war, he would ride in on a white horse to do so. But when he proclaimed peace, he would ride in on a donkey. Jesus, while the multitudes are wanting Jesus to proclaim war on Rome, overthrow their kingdom, rule the world and Israel along with them, he comes in with this statement, and again, we could very easily miss it, that he's telling them, I'm here for peace. Interesting, in Revelation, when he returns, he is on a white horse. Now, Again, anybody could have ridden in on that day on a donkey. No one would have thought that person was the Messiah. Why is it Jesus? Well, the timing is important. And this is one of those things I could go so easily just rabbit trail on this because I love this kind of stuff. I'm going to try and restrain myself a little bit. But this was another prophecy. An angel came to the prophet Daniel in chapter 9, and he gives him just all of this information specifically about Israel. 
kind of gives him the timeline of Israel. And in that, he also tells him very clearly when the Messiah will be revealed to Israel. So I'm going to read to you. This is Daniel chapter 9. This is verse 25. And it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, Daniel was part of the people that had been taken from Jerusalem, from Israel. Jerusalem was in ruins at this point. The temple had been completely destroyed. And so when this prophecy comes to Daniel, he's in Babylon with all the rest of Israel at that time. And he's told that it'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And that's a little confusing to us because we think of a week being a group of seven days. But in this case, it refers to a group of seven years. And uh, so there's some things that need to be decoded a little bit, but it's not that hard. Uh, altogether, the angel is talking about 483 years. From the time that the decree goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah will be 483 years. Well, that decree is recorded for us in Nehemiah chapter 2. It gives the exact day that it went out. And if you use the ancient calendar, as opposed to our calendar, it lands on this day. The exact day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. This was an important day. But even there, in the prophecy given in Daniel chapter 9, we're told what's coming next. Because while it speaks of the arrival or the revealing of the Messiah, it goes on to say, but the Messiah shall be cut off and not for himself. Here's this great promise of the Messiah arriving, the day he would arrive, and yet it is overshadowed by the cross itself. He is there to be cut off, but not for himself. Now again, to understand all that gives us the context of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Because again, people will talk about the triumphant entry like it was this great celebration and something that we would also celebrate. And, but when we understand that there was a, there needs to be like a reverence why Jesus is there, why he's coming in, and the horrible misunderstanding of the crowd of why he is there. Looks like they're welcoming, looks like they're celebrating. And while Matthew doesn't record it, Luke does. And I think this, again, kind of puts it into perspective for us, that while they're rejoicing, Jesus is weeping. In Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 42, Jesus said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for you peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. It had to be a, a crazy thing for the disciples. This is what they've been looking for, right? That Jesus would get the recognition, that people would, re, would rejoice when he arrives. And so they're, they're seeing that, and then here's Jesus weeping and lamenting over the city of Jerusalem. So 
absolute extremes from one another. And you, you could look at what's said there in Luke and go, well, it doesn't seem like the people missed it. They're there. They're cheering. They're shouting Hosanna to the son of David, which is, is Hosanna means save or bring salvation. And referring to him as the son of David is a title of the Messiah. So it's like, well, they, they didn't miss that Jesus was the Messiah, but they completely missed the point of his coming. He wasn't there as a political reformer. He wasn't there as a social reformer. He wasn't there to overthrow Rome. He was there to pay our debt. But that is hidden from their eyes. So the crowd continues to shout, Hosanna. We'll see that later on, children in the temple do the same thing, repeating what's being heard here. And, and again, Matthew doesn't record it, but Luke does, that even on the entry of the city, as people were saying that, the leaders started freaking out, the relig religious leaders coming to Jesus going, make them stop. Don't let them say those things. Don't let them call you the son of David. And Jesus, again, tells us how important this day was. When he tells the religious leaders in Luke 19, verse 40, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And all creation was waiting for that day. And if the people had been silent, creation itself would have cried out. Again, for us to realize what this day means. This had been spoken of 500 years before to the prophet Daniel and now is fulfilled in this day. All right, verse 12. It says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it into a den of thieves. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. And have you never read, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. And then he said to them, excuse me, and then he left them and went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. Now in the morning, he returned to the city. He was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. And when his disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? And Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. After entering into Jerusalem, Jesus goes to the temple. Um, and again, we could read this and go, wow, 
Sounds like Jesus kind of went off and, and probably freaked everyone out in the temple. But again, we could miss the details of what's taking place here. The old covenant, the covenant of the law, the most important part of worship and of the relationship they had under that covenant was sacrifice. That you would go to the temple and make sacrifice. You could also go just to worship, and that's what tithing was considered an act of worship, uh, giving the best of your grains or of your wines or whatever you'd created. It was giving the best was an act of worship. But primarily, it was to go and make sacrifice to cover sin. Not to take it away, to cover it until the perfect sacrifice would be made. And it had to be your best, whatever it was. So if it was a lamb, it had to be the best of your lambs. It couldn't be the one with three legs. It was, wasn't going to make it anyway. Let's sacrifice this one. It had to be the very best, without spot or blemish. And so you would then take that lamb to the temple. It would be inspected by the priest. They made sure also that it was worthy of sacrifice, that it wasn't sickly and dying. And then you would go in and go through the process of making the sacrifice. In Jesus' day, that had all been corrupted. Because when you brought the best lamb you had, they would find a reason it couldn't be used. Just wouldn't be, nope, this is unacceptable. But lucky for you, we have our pre-approved lambs over here. And we'll sell you one of our pre-approved lambs, but because it's pre-approved, it's four times as much as any other lamb. Or dove, or anything else you needed. Yours wasn't good enough. You had to buy theirs. If you had money that you wanted to tithe, you couldn't, you couldn't use Gentile money. You had to use the temple's money. And lucky for you, they'd be able to exchange it for you at four times the rate of any other money exchange. And the priests who were supposed to be guarding and protecting the people from these types of corruption is where all that money was going. The high priest especially was making crazy money off of these things. And where they set, they set the whole thing up was in the court of the Gentiles. Now, the way the temple was set up, it was in different sections. And the main sections of worship were for the Jewish people, but outside of the main area was an area called the court of the Gentiles. And what this was supposed to be was the access point for anyone. That any Gentile could go there and listen to the worship and even ask questions of scholars and priests. And, and it was in a hope of them seeing the light of God in Israel and being adopted into Israel. That's what the court of the Gentiles was for. But now it's filled as a marketplace, and there's no room for the Gentiles. So, these things that were supposed to be to give people access, and certainly the poor and the needy could not afford those things for sacrifice. They were excluded. The Gentiles were excluded. The rest of Israel was greatly hindered in their worship. 
And this is why Jesus snaps. Because his house, and this is a difference. So Jesus has done this twice. This is the second time. First time is at the beginning of his ministry. John chapter 2 records that. He goes in and he says, my father's house. This time he says, my house. I love it. And he overturns these tables. Now, these aren't the plastic fold-up tables that we use, right? For years, that's exactly what I pictured. These were huge marble slabs weighing hundreds and hundreds of pounds. So not only were they ticked, they got tipped over because now they got to set them up again, right? But this was a huge deal when Jesus overturned them, made a huge mess. And unlike the first time in John chapter 2 where he does this and leaves, this time he sets up camp afterwards. And again, I love the authority that Jesus shows here. This is my house. And then he just sits down. (laughs) And the poor and the blind come to him and he heals them. Right? I love it. I, I love the Lord's heart when it comes to revealing who he really is to the people who really want to know. And the ones that should have had access, the poor and the blind, man, he's made the way, and they just start coming in. And in spite of all the great things, and I even love that that Matthew records the wonderful things that he did, right? There wasn't anything anyone could be upset about. He's healing blind people. He's healing the lame. No one could complain about that. But even so, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are offended because the children continue to say, Hosanna to the son of David. They are indignant, is what Matthew says. And Jesus quotes back to them when they say, don't you hear what they're saying? He quotes back from Psalm 8 and really is saying, yes, I hear exactly what they're saying. And that is perfect praise and worship. That's what it's meant to be. It's been perfected in, in children. And so he doesn't say, well, yeah, you know, that could be taken wrong. He's like, nope, they're worshiping me and they're right to do so. And they've got the right heart when it comes to worship and to praise. I think one of the things, and again, we love worship and we love great music. And I always love it when Candy introduces some new song. You know, I I love that kind of stuff. So I don't want to come off like I'm being negative. But in our day and age, very often what we think of as being praise and worship are the big bands and the big show and the perfect arrangement and all this stuff. It's through children. Praise and worship has been made perfect. Again, it doesn't mean that you need the kids' choir to have perfect worship. The idea is that we have the heart of a child, the simplicity of a child to go, I just love you, Jesus. I want to sing it. I want to say it. I want to talk about it. That's what worship looks like, right? Now, Jesus leaves. He goes out to Bethany, most likely to go and stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. That's where they live. And the next morning, he's coming back. And again, this is one of those that we can just read and go, that's weird. That's so weird that Jesus sees this fig tree alongside the road, and he goes to it, no figs. And it, again, kind of seems like Jesus just snaps a little bit. Stupid tree. You're withered, you know. You're dead. And it dies right then. And the disciples are like, what just happened? 
that's kind of cool. Can we do that too? You know? <laughs> Completely distracted. And Jesus, it would seem, just gives them the answer. Like, yeah, if you have faith, you can do that too. But there's so much more going on here. So this is what is referred to as a action parable. A lot of times Jesus speaks a parable, and he tells us, like, this is what it means, and these are the, the things in that parable. This is when Jesus does something, and it has a greater meaning than we realize. Now, because Jesus doesn't explain it, we have to kind of piece it together. And this is one of those that later on the disciples would go, ah, now I get it. But they didn't get it here. And again, we could just go really quick and miss it. This is one of two destructive miracles Jesus does. He never does them to people. Uh, the other one was the, the herd of pigs, right? And this one to the tree. Now, part of it, and again, there's a lot of different directions you, you could go. Part of it is simply showing Jesus' authority. This tree, he goes, you'll never bear fruit again. And it withers right then. Huge amount of authority over all creation, all authority over all creation. Um, but as I said, this has a lot more meaning to it. The tree itself, it looked healthy. And these fig trees in this region of the world, that when they bear leaves, there is fruit on them. And so from at a distance, it looks healthy, it looks productive, it looks like there's an abundance to it. But when you get close, it doesn't have fruit. It looks great on the outside. And when Jesus curses it, it withers, and it's gone. Again, what's going on here? When Jesus, again, I think part of we need to keep it in the context of what's been taking place. Because I've had people talk about this, and to some degree, they'll say, well, this is re referring to Israel. That Jesus is talking about Israel as a nation, and that because they haven't recognized him, there is a judgment coming. Well, that's a safe bet, because Jesus has mentioned that a few times. Even in the scripture that I read from Matthew 19, he talks about the days are coming when the enemies of Israel will surround Jerusalem. Right? So there is a judgment coming. And it is because they have not recognized Jesus for who he is and why he's there. But the problem that I have with saying that this fig tree is all about Israel... Um, is because there's a finality to it. Jesus says, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Ever again. Now, when it comes to Israel, there are a couple different ways that it is pictured in Scripture. And some of them are very, they repeat a lot. Uh, vineyard is one of them. And we'll see that actually next week when Jesus talks about the uh, uh, parable of the vineyard. Uh, fig tree is another one that's used. But when it comes to the fig tree, it's always specifically about their spiritual life. And in Jesus' day, it was a common uh, term that if someone was reading the scripture or say if Dan and I were having a conversation about the Lord and, or the scriptures, we would refer to that as being under the fig tree. That if, if you had your morning devotions and someone said, hey, what'd you do this morning? Spend some time under the fig tree. It was just a common term, right? And so, looking at that, the idea that Jesus 
is using this fig tree as a picture of Israel, I don't think that's completely true. Because Israel will bear fruit again. And some people say, no, no, God's done with Israel. And they'll actually point to this scripture and, say, and use it as, as a proof text. But again, I think it's a misuse of it. Uh, Paul deals with it several times, but I think one of the best ones is in Romans 11, where he says, and I say, has God then cast away his people? Certainly not. There's no gray area there. Paul goes on to explain that God has a great plan for Israel, right? So they will bear fruit again. Um, but consider the context, what just took place the day before at the temple. Because while I don't feel that this fits Israel, it does fit the temple. The place where all Israel would gather to be under the fig tree. The center of their spiritual connection. The place where God's spirit would dwell over the Ark of the Covenant. Because of the religious leaders not knowing who Jesus was and being the ones directly responsible for his crucifixion, the temple has not borne fruit for a long time. And from this point forward, never will again. Even when the temple is rebuilt, and it will be, I think the building that they will rebuild there in Jerusalem will be architecturally amazing. Absolutely beautiful. Just like the temple was then. It was one of the wonders of the, the ancient world. And at a distance, it looked like it had life and health and fruitfulness. But when you got up to it, when you saw it, there was no fruit. And the temple that will be built will be the same. Beautiful on the outside, but God's presence will not dwell there. No sacrifice ever made in the new temple will count for anything. It will be an empty building because the perfect sacrifice has been made and there is nothing to be added to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The temple will never bear fruit again. It has withered away to nothing. Now again, it seems like Jesus' answer to the disciples who basically went, wow, that's cool. Can we do that? <laughs> it sounds like he goes, oh, just have faith. But again, there's more to it than that. They didn't get it at the time. They would later on. But the, the parallel is basically, do you want to bear fruit? Because we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ dwells within us. And we are joking ourselves if we don't think that same temptation to look great on the outside isn't a temptation for us. There's plenty of money changers that need to be dealt with in here. Tables that need to be overturned, right? It's very easy for us to look good on the outside, to sound good on the outside, to tell people everything's going great when inside it's, it's corruption. We might still be saved, but we're falling apart. How can we know that we are going to be a temple that bears good fruit? We need to be people of faith. And that's simple. It's simpler than we make it. It isn't working up faith. It isn't making it like so big and huge in our life that we just never doubt anything. It's trusting the Lord in spite of our doubt. It's 
allowing him to overturn those tables. It's letting him have his way, which I think ends up being the exact opposite. We don't look great on the outside, <laughs> but there's real fruit being born in our lives. And some of those things that need to be dealt with inside are hard. They're, they're like mountains that need to be moved. He knows how to do that. And we simply just need to have faith that he wants to, that he's able to. And he wants to make our lives bear good fruit in his name and for his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.